So the first thing I want to say is that I made an egregious error um, last week, and I need to correct it. And that is that when we were talking about Jesus giving uh, Peter the keys to the kingdom, I said that it could have been, you know, the disciples or the community that we couldn't tell from the grammar. And I like woke up in the middle of the night thinking, that's wrong. <laughs> that's in English. You can't tell from the grammar. In Greek, you absolutely can tell from the grammar because the Greek pronouns are singular or plural. And so the when Jesus says, I give you the kingdom, keys of the kingdom, he, it is a singular pronoun. It is directed to Peter. So ignore what I said. I fixed the video, but I wanted to actually record this because just in case somebody saw the original video before I fixed it. Um, so that's my confessions. I'm not perfect. Sorry. Um, but anyway, on with the story, not only are people asking each other who Jesus really is, but Jesus is asking. Last week, he asked his disciples what the rumors were among the people, and then he asked the disciples themselves, who do you say that I am? And when Peter answers, you are the Messiah, Jesus knows they're ready to hear the rest of the story. They've all been um, expecting this great king with this big army, someone who's going to free them from Rome's domination. No more Herods, no more Pontius Pilots. Can you imagine the look on their faces when Jesus tells them that as the son of man, the Messiah, that's like a name for the Messiah, he's going to have to suffer a lot. All of the religious elite will reject him. The Greek word here for reject has the connotation of being examined and then cast out, expelled, disqualified. Then he will be put to death. The disciples have to be absolutely stunned, horrified. Jesus, dead? Then, Jesus says, after three days, I will rise again. The disciples have no idea what this rise again bit could possibly mean. Peter can see the demoralizing impact this is having on the disciples, and he calls Jesus aside and starts chastising him. Jesus looks over at the disciples and looks back at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch, that seems so harsh and so unlike Jesus that I had to go look at the Greek. As it turns out, the Greek words mean depart. That is in the imperative and is followed by another word that means go back or behind. And this is all followed by the word satanas, translated here as Satan. But remember, the earliest Greek manuscripts are all in capital letters. It is only much later that upper and lowercase letters are differentiated in copies of the manuscripts. So in the original, this could definitely say satanas without being a proper noun. And that means this word could take on the simple, normal Greek meaning of adversary. I don't think Jesus is calling Peter Satan. 
I think Jesus is saying, stop fighting with me, Peter. Go back to the other disciples. You are ensnaring me. You are not setting your mind on God's things, but on humans' things. So when Jesus tells Peter, you've got your mind on the wrong things, you've got your mind on human things, not God's things, that's true. Peter, in the moment, is worried about the disciples, not about what God's purpose might be in all this. And Jesus cares. He cares that he's disappointing his disciples. He cares about their morale. He loves them. And if he thinks Peter's words are tempting him to stray from the terrible path he knows is before him, it it just goes to show how utterly human Jesus is. God has shown Jesus what's coming, including his resurrection. But Jesus must be feeling pretty alone and vulnerable right about now. Perhaps he himself is still wrapping his head around this. Jesus calls everyone to him at this point, his disciples, the crowd of followers, everyone, and says, if you want to be my disciple, set yourself aside, meaning set your self-interest, all that you've dreamed for yourself, all that you've invested, set yourself aside and pick up your cross and come with me. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, isn't he? He's telling them all exactly where his path is leading. He not only knows he's going to be killed, he knows he's going to be tortured to death by crucifixion. Can you imagine the horror, the pall that settles over the stunned crowd? They thought Jesus was here to rescue them but he's led them right into a dead end. They thought he was bringing life. He said so, didn't he? But now he's leading them straight to their deaths and not just any deaths, but torture and death at the hands of the Romans. The disciples must be sick to their stomachs. Then Jesus starts with that typical upside down talk of his. He says, Whoever wants to save or rescue their life will lose or utterly destroy it. But if you lose your life because of me and because of the good news, you will save it. And as you know, that word save means rescue, heal, make it whole. Jesus says, what good does it do to acquire the whole world if you lose your soul, lose your life? In the process, the word, the Greek word there can be translated with either, either way. He's saying it's better to lose everything you've accumulated for yourself. It's better to lose everything in the world, all the things that are actually killing your soul and choose wholeness and healing of your soul instead. Even if it ends in utter rejection by the powers that be, and even if it ends in the death of your physical body. Jesus continues, whoever in this adulterous and sinful generation is ashamed of my words, the son of man will be ashamed of when he comes with the holy angels in the glory of his father. Now notice that Jesus does not say he's going to sentence this adulterous and sinful generation to eternal fiery torture. 
he just says he'll be ashamed of them when he comes. And rightfully so, huh? But also note that Jesus already has a sense of coming back in power and glory in the presence of God and the holy angels. This is Mark's version we're reading here, not Matthew with his end time prophecies from the Hebrew Bible, nor John with his theology, although they both have this story too. But the fact that Mark has this passage worded like this seems significant to me. This is, I think, the first time we see Jesus put the entire sequence together. He now knows he must be tried, tortured to death, resurrected, and then come again. Jesus ends by saying, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see God's kingdom has come in power. The Greek used for has come is in a very special tense. It's not the present tense, mean, meaning something happening now, nor is it the past tense, nor even the future tense, meaning something happening at another time. The Greek language has another tense that we don't really have a direct correlation for in English. It is the perfect tense, which means the action is fully complete. It has happened, but is still impacting the present. Jesus is specifically saying that some of those standing there will see that the kingdom of God has already fully come in power and is still continuing to be present in power. That is an astounding statement. He's been trying to tell us that all along. Who will it be who sees this event? He, I mean, he says some people standing here, so obviously not everyone standing there will see it. And as it happens, we find out that about a week later, Jesus takes three of the 12 up a high mountain. The ones he takes are Peter and James and James's brother, John. And there in the upper reaches of the mountain, Jesus changes. The Greek word is metamorphothē. Jesus undergoes a metamorphosis. He starts to glow. Matthew says his face gives light like the sun. Mark says his clothes shine extremely bright, whiter than any launderer could ever get them. And then suddenly there are two more figures in the light. And immediately, Peter, James, and John understand that these are Elijah and Moses themselves, and they are talking with Jesus. Luke says they talk to Jesus about his departure and about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Well, Peter panics at this moment. Peter is the doer of the bunch. He's the one who wanted to walk on water when he saw Jesus do it, and his mouth continually runs away with him. So Mark says Peter starts babbling because they're all so frightened. Peter jumps up and says, oh, I'm so glad we are here. Let the three of us build shelters, you know, tabernacles, booths for each of you. But just as Peter finishes saying this, a bright cloud appears and envelops Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. 
And a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is a terribly serious moment, but I I have to chuckle because I think God just told Peter to shut up and sit down. (laughs) And then as suddenly as it began, the whole thing is over. The cloud vanishes. Elijah and Moses vanish. Jesus is no longer shining like the sun. He's just Jesus. As they come down off the mountain, Jesus tells the three disciples not to tell anyone about this until he has risen from the dead. Well, that's more of Mark's, quote, secret literary device. It's not likely Jesus actually said that. Nevertheless, it is copied by Matthew. Luke changes it to simply say the disciples decide to keep this rather strange experience to themselves for a while. (laughs) But this is the second time in a week that Jesus has said something about rising from the dead. And as they walk down the mountain, Peter, James, and John are completely mystified. They're obviously afraid to ask Jesus directly about it. So they fall back and start talking with each other, wondering what in the world rising from the dead might mean. Now, there's a lot of historical and theological significance stuffed into this incident. It's so significant, it even has a name, the Transfiguration. But I have lots of questions about it, like, why does John, who is present at it, literally, physically, one of these three guys completely omit the story from his gospel. Why does it happen on a mountain? Why does Jesus shine? Why do Elijah and Moses appear? And why does God say, this is my son? I remember he said that before. What is the significance of saying it here? We'll dive into these questions later when we go into our breakout groups. As Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, they find the rest of the disciples arguing with some scribes, some of those religious lawyers. A big crowd of people has gathered around them. Jesus asks, what's the problem here? And one of the men in the crowd says, teacher, I brought my son to you for healing. He is possessed by a spirit that seizes him, throws him on the ground, and makes him foam at the mouth. He clenches his teeth and becomes stiff as a board, even falling into the fire or into the water. Your disciples tried to heal him, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, good grief, you unbelieving, perverted generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring me the boy. Now, I want to pause here because that sounds awfully harsh. It really doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. I think we need to look at the Greek and also at the context here. Now, remember that Jesus has just realized in the past few days that he's going to be dying very soon. And then after his resurrection, he'll go back to the father. Very soon, this whole ministry of bringing the good news and healing people is going to sit squarely on the disciples' shoulders. And if they don't have faith that God's got the power 
and not them, it's never going to work. If they keep trying to do it, you know, because they're like have the magic touch or something, they'll never be able to do it. This is God's power. So I would think that Jesus' words here would reflect this context. And they do, if we dig just a little bit into the Greek. The word perverse can also mean someone who has misinterpreted or distorted something, which would fit because the disciples are definitely not getting it. And Mark doesn't even use the word perverse. In Mark, Jesus is just addressing the smallness of their faith. Matthew and Luke are the ones who add in the bit about misinterpreting things. And that word generation, Jesus uses that a lot. And it's archaic to our ears. We have the word generation. We just don't use it the same way they they used it back then, for the most part. Jesus seems to use it like we'd use the word folks or you people. So Jesus is saying, you unbelieving people, people of little faith, how long will I be with you? As in, how much longer do you think I'll be here with you? The disciples do not understand the urgency like Jesus does. And this bit about putting up with them, well, turns out the Greek word for put up actually means to hold up or bear up. Jesus is saying, how much longer must I prop you up? I read this not as a rude remark of exasperation. If we take Jesus' comments in their immediate context and make some different choices with the Greek, we can see that Jesus is really worried about the disciples being able to do all this without him. The disciples have had the power to heal people for some time now, but they do not fully believe it. They are relying heavily on Jesus. They see their role as following Jesus around and perhaps going out and preaching and healing from time to time when he tells them to. They have no idea that very soon Jesus will no longer be with them even though he told them a few days ago, very specifically, what's about to happen. They they aren't absorbing it. They are still trying to figure out what he means when he says he will rise again. Well, the people bring the boy to Jesus, and the boy immediately falls into a convulsion. It's interesting that Mark's is the version that has the most details. That's unusual. Maybe he was there or... Maybe he worked from a different source than Matthew and Luke did. The boy's father says, please, if you can, please help us. I guess it's understandable that since the disciples couldn't heal the boy, the boy's father isn't sure Jesus can do it either. But Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can? All things are within the power of the one who believes. And immediately the father cries out, oh, I believe, help my unbelief. At the father's words, the boy convulses once more and then lays still as death. But Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up and the boy stands. Notice that the boy convulses and then is still when his father says he believes even in the midst of knowing his belief is imperfect. I think the boy is healed at that point. Jesus simply reaches down and helps him up. 
I think it is the father's faith that heals him, just like it was the bleeding woman's faith who healed her and so many other instances in scripture. Jesus has tried to tell us all along, both in 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 what he does and explicitly saying that it is our faith that heals us. Well, later, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't heal the boy. I mean, they've been healing other people. And according to Mark, Jesus says, it's because this kind only goes out with prayer. I've always been taught that this means the disciples haven't prayed enough. And I think it's probably true that ongoing, regular prayer is a sort of conditioning and training to keep ourselves centered on God. But I also wonder if in this instance, Jesus may also be referring to the fact that even though the disciples may not have been prepared, that father has certainly been praying for his son. Matthew's version is a little different. He uh, he says, Jesus tells the disciples, it's because your faith is so small. If your faith is even as big as a tiny mustard seed, you will tell a mountain to move and it will do it. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus has given them this power because they they are the bearers of the good news. They are going to be carrying God's billboards after Jesus goes. They, They have got to get this. So up to now, we've been more or less following Mark's gospel since it was written first. And we've seen how Matthew and Luke copied Mark's material and then interspersed their own, with Matthew adding in prophecies from the Hebrew Bible to illustrate how Jesus is fulfilling the Messianic prophecies, while Luke often takes the material and adds detail and dialogue and drama. John is kind of out there on his own, taking bits from the others, but adding in his own theological interpretations and sometimes even adding different events. At this point in the chronology, however, Mark has a big gap. It's actually the second one he's had. From this point on, with just a few exceptions, he pretty much skips over everything that happens until Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. That makes me pause and think. Why would Mark have these gaps? Are the two gaps that he has related? Forgetting John for the moment, let's think about how the three synoptic gospels are structured. Matthew and Luke start with Jesus' birth, but Mark completely omits the birth. He begins with Jesus' baptism and the beginning of his ministry, his ministry of miracles and teachings. So that tells us Mark is focused on Jesus' ministry. The other two writers also have Jesus' miracles and teachings, but they have something that Mark doesn't have. They have Discipleship 101. Matthew's version is called the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke's version is called the Sermon on the Plain because they put them in different physical settings, but they're the same teachings. So maybe the difference is that Mark is interested in Jesus' life and ministry, but not so, not so much in his training of his disciples. Let's keep going. 
Next comes a big swath of miracles and teachings recorded in all three Gospels. And then the transfiguration happens. That's where we are right now in Jesus' ministry. The transfiguration is recorded in all three Gospels, but it happens to be the center of Mark's overall chiasm. His whole book is a chiasm, and this is the pivotal point at which the secret that Jesus is the Messiah, that that he, he keeps telling everybody to keep secret, begins to be revealed in Mark's story. This is the last thing Mark has Jesus say must be kept a secret. The transfiguration is the last secret. After this turning point in Mark's overall gospel, the secret begins to be revealed. But here we hit another big gap in Mark. Jesus sends out 70 disciples with instructions on how to be itinerant preachers. And when they come back to him, Jesus' ministry begins to focus on teaching the disciples how to work together and how to be careful in these dangerous times. He's going to hit several of his themes from the Sermon on the Mount, including specifically being light and salt. Jesus will remind his disciples of the critical importance of the kingdom of God. He will urge them to have faith and to be humble, and he will answer their questions about when the end times will come. It's a huge section of Jesus' ministry, and Mark skips all of it except for just a few bits. Mark doesn't pick the story up again until Jesus' last days in Jerusalem. Then Mark's story begins to track closely with Matthew and Luke again. So when we notice big differences between the Gospels and back up to take a bird's eye view, we can see that Mark omits the big chunks where Jesus trains his disciples. Mark's whole message is laser focused on how Jesus reveals to the world that he is the Messiah. It is so interesting to see how and why each writer chooses their material and to discover the reasons behind how they organize it as they do. So this is the end of our class series on who is Jesus really. The transfiguration leaves no doubt about that. Our next class series will focus on what it means to be workers in the kingdom of God. In the next class series, we'll follow along as Jesus teaches Discipleship 102. For now, though, let's talk some more about the transfiguration. There's a lot of important imagery baked into that story. So let's get right to your breakout groups. Gail, we need another half hour to discuss those questions. I mean, right? We got to through. We got through all of them, but we we're quick on a couple of them yeah like we said who needed the transfiguration duh (laughs) the disciples (laughs) but then um martha just made a really good point tell her martha tell her well it's late in his ministry depending on the account and he's going to go to this horrible death and you know i think it has to be a reassurance to him that god that, that this event happened. It's a reinforcement to Jesus that um, I know this is, I know this is terrible. You've done a great job. You are my beloved son. Yeah. I think, 
if I was Jesus, I would have worn it back going into that last. You know, Julia raised Julia raised the interesting point that made that really it was a benefit to both yeah. Jesus and the disciples. Yeah, it was it was further inspiration, further inspiration for the disciples, and what Martha just said, it, it was helpful to Jesus too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So not so much an or as an and. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And we have a question. Um, about John leaving out the transfiguration. Um, what is the context, you know, where, what is John talking about in the time frame of the transfiguration? What does he Boy, emphasize? That's a really great question. And I have no idea. Okay. Because we were confused because of the fact that John was emphasizing Jesus is the word. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus I is know, God. Right? Why would he have left out both the temptation in the wilderness and the transfiguration? And we couldn't come up with a good reason. And we even Googled it. And all the scholars <laughs> that we found in our short time of Googling didn't really have an answer either. What do y'all think? Woody brought up the the possibility that, you know, since it's possible that John himself personally did not actually write the gospel of John, but it might've been some of his followers Mm. who wrote it and had been, you know, schooled in by him on the theology piece that perhaps he had not shared this with them. Oh, that's interesting point. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we had a question also in our group, the, the transfiguration, how many days did that happen before Jesus went to Jerusalem? You know, it's hard to tell because everybody puts these things in a little different order and the best that I can tell, and at least in the order that I'm putting it, there's, you know, this discipleship 102 plus a whole lot of healings continuing and ongoing yet to come before we get to the end. It's just okay. that what has changed is that there is now no question in Jesus' mind and hopefully in the disciples' mind that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's going to die. Well, we, or what I kind of was when God came down with the dove at the baptism and said, this is my son and I'm well pleased with him. That was basically the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mm-hmm. And now he's saying it again, but it's, I said, it's kind of like the beginning of the conclusion. It isn't the conclusion of his ministry, but it's the beginning mm-hmm. of the conclusion of his ministry. But if there was a lot of time in there, maybe it wasn't. Maybe. And, and you, I think you touched on one of these questions was why now? What, you know, it, what could link, if it isn't, as you point out, you know, the end of his ministry. So if it's not bookends of his ministry, which is what you would think, right? So now what is it that links God saying, this is my beloved son at Jesus baptism, which was the very beginning of his ministry. And just before he went into the desert. Okay. And God saying that now at this particular point 
What connects the transfiguration with the baptism, if anything? I'm not like hunting for it's his ministry changing at this point, and it and it's beginning a different emphasis in his ministry. Could be, yeah. That he was preparing for his death, and you know that was the reason that he that um, Moses and Elijah were talking to him and all that. So if that's not correct, and that. But it doesn't everything. have to be not correct because it could be that this is the moment Jesus accepted his death. Hmm. It could be that this is just after Jesus has comprehended the full scope of what he's about to do. Maybe this is where he lays it before the Lord. Oh my gosh, I just had another thought. For Jesus to come to earth, he had to lay aside his Shekinah glory. Yeah. Wow. And here, I got goosebumps. The Shekinah glory is all around them. And those three disciples are seeing that Jesus is God and is the Messiah more fully than they ever have before. And, and the Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus about the things that are about to happen. It's, it's like it, the, the, the whole, I am God, and this is really happening. And like, um, Julie and Martha were talking about Jesus being reassured. Mm -hmm. It's like, he, he gets that last big burst of Shekinah glory before going into what is going to be his earthly death, the death of his body. And is he now laying down again? Is he now laying it down again? Well, he would have to in order to die. Right? Mm -hmm. But with a completely different knowledge than he did at the beginning of that ministry, right? mm -hmm. If he were going to come back right then as Messiah and King, that would have been the point where he would have been able to do that. reacquired his Shekinah glory and come down from the mountain shining. And just and, kept it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but this was a chance for him to say, yes, I will follow the path that has been laid before me. Oh, I th you just gave me chills because here is the mm -hmm. moment perhaps where he had to choose. Do I come now in glory or do I do the will of my father? Wow. And lay it down. Oh, that's a big thought. Gail, we have a question. You always have questions. We have more questions than answers. <laughs> yeah. So in question one, it was why might it be Elijah and Moses rather than King David or Miram? How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? They just knew. And they also could hear them speaking. They could hear what they were saying. So you think Jesus called them by name and the disciples went, oh, yeah, that's who that is. Somehow Possible. they identified themselves. Absolutely. There was some way, either straight, direct connection to the heart <laughs> or something mm -hmm. was said. So we, we have to take that for granted because it doesn't say how they knew in this story. It just says they were. I'm inclined to believe it that they were. Why would I believe that it would be Elijah and Moses? 
What? What is well, it? Well, we had two parts. We talked about how Elijah was taken up in a, a chariot, a chariot kind of thing. And Moses died on a mountain and God himself buried him. Mm-hmm. So in both of those instances, they died, but nobody saw a body. Well, that's very interesting. And I never even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. we had lots of questions. <laughs> why else might, why else might the two characters in this context need to be Elijah and Moses? What is it about Elijah and Moses that is important to this context? Well, we, we also, Renee, we also talked about, you know, the significance of Elijah and Moses and their deaths and, you know, did that tie in. But we also were saying Elijah um, is the prophet that the Jews still today set a table for at the Passover Seder, expecting that he will return. Yes. And some of the prophecies about Jesus were that he was going to be Elijah. And Moses was the one who basically brought them out of is out of Egypt and helped to create the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually there are specific prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. One of them, Moses himself, before he died, he told the nation, there will be another prophet like me. God is going to raise up another prophet like Moses, okay, from Israel to come to you. And that is, they, that is why they keep thinking that Jesus is a prophet raised from the dead. You know, is he Moses? That's, that has to be in their minds fulfilled in order for the Messiah to come. Now the Messiah could be that prophet or it could be somebody else who's that prophet. And then the Messiah, but the Messiah can't happen till that prophet has been raised. Okay. And the second thing, as you point out is the very last two verses in the old Testament, in the way the books are ordered are the last two verses of Malachi that specifically say Elijah must come. Elijah will come and turn the hearts of the parents to the children. And wasn't there a question? John the Baptist was that Elijah come. He, Jesus said, Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist guys. Okay. Okay. And Jesus is the prophet like Moses. So this is, this is why contextually, it had to be Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. Wasn't there some speculation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that people were saying, is he Moses? Is he Elijah? Exactly. The Herod so, kept wondering, like, who is this guy, right? And those were the questions. So this could be, you know, this could be answering that question. No, he's not. Here they are. They're separate from him. He is not them. He is God. He is greater than. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's the significance of the high mountain? Go ahead, say it. It's closer to God. 
<laughs> the answer is always okay. Jesus. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. We we talked about being closer to God on mountains, but also if I remember right, in the Roman and Greek mythology at the time, their gods lived on mountaintops. Golly, y'all are coming up with the best stuff. I love this. And so maybe that was a way for the writers to incorporate to the Gentiles that Jesus was God and by oh, using funny. mountaintops. The same so cool. And there. where else came down from the mountain? I think Moses. Moses. Yeah. We talked about that. The, the Ten Commandments yeah. and all that. The law yeah, he came back shining. on a mountain. The law yeah. was given on a mountain. We also... Um, said you know going up on a mountain they have a lot more privacy and you know when god showed himself <laughs> to moses um before he came down the mountain shining as well well um, and yeah and remember to, they had to the, when moses went up he he had them say tell tell the people to stay away from the mountain this is a, this is how they will die if they touch the mountain while i'm up there. yeah right. we talked about that too so Mm -hmm. The fact that the mountain is kind of a holy place and it's set apart and away from the people so that God can safely have his Shekinah glory there and not kill everybody. Not hurt anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Although the three disciples are there, God always, always makes provision for our humanity. Mm -hmm. For our shortcomingness, for our unholiness. God doesn't need anything special to be able to make it possible for us to be near. But yes, you're right. The, you know, they were part of that experience, but the rest of the people were not, right? That's right. cool. Did y'all have any ideas on why Peter just all of a sudden needed to build a tent? We answered the question. It's like a tabernacle. Yeah, it's the same yeah. word, tent, tabernacle, booth. It's that it like the two shelter under. that is used during yeah. the Feast of the Tabernacles. But the thing I think at first is the Holy Tabernacle and where they would to have a place that was significant and commemorate those type of people, quote unquote, that are there. That makes more a lot like of sense. Worship, the worship kind of thing in my mind. And a time of rejoicing. We're really excited this happened. We want to remember it forever. Let's build something to help us remember. What if they had so Peter Tabernacles? What would have happened? What 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 if they what if they had built three tabernacles up there? What would have that led to? I don't worry. People worshiping all is right. It would have led to idol worship. It, people were not, not only, I, I think Peter was thinking about himself in that moment because he was like, okay, if I can get Elijah and Moses to stay, then <laughs> Jesus can stay, you know, oh, he can stay sweet. too, you know, he's like, I can get everybody to stay and then everything will be cool. You know, he's not going to leave. That's probably close to the truth, right? Yeah. He was, he was trying to, you know, provide for Jesus. And here, your two best friends. We'll build yeah. houses for you. And you cannot just live here on this mountain. That's you right. Know? I heard Donna <laughs> saying something. Donna, what were you saying? I'm not sure at what point. I always blab something. I was just talking about the worshiping 
of those people. So, yeah, I think yeah. we got that. One so of the thoughts I had was sometimes you just feel like you got to do something. You don't know what it is you got to do. I think Peter was like that a lot. <laughs> I think that was where he was coming from. It's like, oh, my gosh, this big thing's happening. Let's do something. Um, I know. Let's do this. But he hospitality. Yeah. yeah, you don't put all the thought into it. You don't figure it all out. You just get excited. You oh. want to do something when mm-hmm. something extremely exciting happens in your life. I swear Peter had ADHD. (laughs) He was so impulsive. (laughs) And, you know, when I was in college, we had to write a report comparing ourselves to a character from the Bible, a person from the Bible. And most of the women in my class were doing Lydia or Naomi or Ruth or Esther. You know, I did Peter. I'm like, I am so much like Peter. I'm the one who puts my foot in my mouth. I'm the one who blurts things out when she needs to be quiet. Um, I jump to the defense of, you know, whoever needs to be defended. I am so Peter. And I, I think that, uh, you know, this is typical Peter. I think that's why Peter's there. (laughs) It's just so wonderful to study this in a way that we can touch their humanity. And see mm-hmm. ourselves in the story. Marlene, you had a comment a second ago. Do you remember what it was? I was I was just gonna sort of riff off of what Renee was saying about, you know, well, if I build these things, you know, then maybe Jesus will stay. Um and and so the, the thought popped up to me, would Peter have said this after listening to this conversation about what was coming and that Jesus was going to be crucified and all of that and he was thinking well if we build these tabernacles up here and they can stay up here on top of the mountain everybody will know who jesus really is and they'll be so impressed because elijah and moses are here and then none of this will have to happen mm-hmm. oh and wouldn't that fit in the context with the setup of this story right with peter mm-hmm. he's in the kingdom bit right yeah wow good thoughts gosh y'all are knocking it out of the park today <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I have to go back to work. Okay, bye, buddy. 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 See you. See you in two weeks. It two was weeks. nice to see your smiling face. Week. Okay. Whew, that was a lot. Did y'all have anything else? Well, that extra five minutes really helped us. Good. Well, it was a lot yeah. to cover and a lot of concepts, and they were important. I thought. Yeah, we yeah. could have used another fifteen. Okay. I had a quick question. Um, the chiasm. Uh-huh. Which that chiasm? was Mark. That, Mark. that was Mark, right? Did Mark, Mark write Mark's the book is a chiasm, and there's lots of little yeah. chiasms in it. And and so when we were talking about the 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 voice from heaven being at the at his baptism, Center. and then now that was that the beginning and the end of the chiasm structure, but then somebody remembered that you had said the transfiguration was the center of the chiasm. So the, the, the the voice is the beginning and the center and what's at the end is the crucifixion. Okay. Okay. Lots of food for thought. This was fun. Mm -hmm. I just thought this was fun to play with.
I, I got a whole it. new take on the transfiguration. I'm so I glad. Mean, is, yeah. I'm so glad. It's just fun. I, it's just, I love the way y'all are thinking about this and playing with the pieces and, and putting it together. Thank All you. Right. See ya. Right. Bye. Bye. I love you. I love you people. Love you too.